Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. And welcome to the forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. My name is Peter Thompson. I'm the Livable Planet Editor at the Public Radio International Daily News Program, The World. And I'm today's moderator. I'm also a recipient of a belated flu shot, which I got <laughs> just the other day after I was invited to join this panel. I, figured, <laughs> I had no reason to be here if I hadn't gotten my shot. Uh, we're here today, today to discuss the flu this year's outbreak. What do we need to know about it? Our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Yonatan Grad. He's assistant professor of, in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases here at the Harvard Chan School. To his right, Alfred DeMaria. He's the medical director of the Bureau of Infectious Diseases of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. To Alfred's right, Mark Lipsitch. He's a professor of epidemiology and the director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics also at the Harvard Chan School. And joining us remotely from Atlanta is Tim Uyeki. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He's the Chief Medical <laughs> Officer of the Influenza Division at the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC. That's the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. We're streaming live on Facebook today on uh, the websites of the forum and PRI's The World. And our program will include uh, a brief Q&A toward the end. So you can send us your questions by email, please, at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. And you can also participate in a live chat that's happening right now on the forum website. So to get to our topic, uh, seasonal flu is pretty much a regular thing. It comes pretty much every year. Some years are worse than others. This year seems to be a little worse than usual, uh, although it's far, as, far from as bad as you can get. Uh, this happens to be the 100th anniversary of the global flu pandemic of 2018, when uh, estimates range from 20 to 100 million people died around the world of the flu. We are nowhere near that, of course, this year, but where are we? Uh, and why does this year's flu seem so bad? Is it worse? this year than what's been expected in the U.S. and globally? If so, how can surveillance, response, vaccines help us? These are some of the questions we're going to be hoping to get to in the next few minutes. And uh, to get things started, though, we're going to start with a news clip from Reuters TV, which is going to give us an overview of where we are today. This season's flu epidemic is taking a heavy toll on children. The latest data from the Centers for Disease Control shows 16 more kids died from the flu last week. Take necessary precautions and just encourage hand washing. Parents in this close-knit community of Columbus, Indiana, are still in shock. After seven-year-old Savannah Jesse passed away on Thursday, possibly due to complications related to influenza B. She's one of 53 children who have died since the flu season began in October. With the number of flu cases rising, doctors are reporting shortages of antiviral medications like Tamiflu and an uptick in hospitalizations. A frustrated nurse in Pensacola, Florida, recorded this YouTube flu warning that now has more than 3 million views. A cesspool of funky flu at the ER right now. So, please don't bring your team in. Please don't bring your healthy children, especially your newborn babies. And at Atlanta's Grady Memorial Hospital, which has been overwhelmed by the H3N2 virus, staff have quarantined new flu patients in this separate mobile waiting room, typically reserved for disasters like hurricanes. While the flu vaccine is only 34% effective against the most dominant strain of the virus in the U.S., health officials are still urging everyone to get their shots. They say the flu season's peak is still two to three weeks away, and getting vaccinated could prevent future infections and lower the severity of the symptoms. Okay, so that's uh, a quick bit of the news, and now we're going to turn to the folks who can help us get behind that news. Um, 
about three minutes each to start, please. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jonathan, from the Grad School of Public Health here at Harvard University. Put it in context for us. What's so unusual about this year's flu, and why are we here talking about it? So as we heard in this Reuters clip, and as I think everyone is familiar with, uh, this is a particularly bad season. Uh, some numbers that the CDC put out recently uh, at the end of last week indicated that nearly 8% of outpatient visits were attributable to influenza-like illness. And that's uh, clinical manifestations of respiratory illness that could be attributable to influenza or to other respiratory viruses. Uh, there was also um, the report that 10% of deaths were attributable to influenza and pneumonia. So these numbers really put this flu season amidst the uh, more severe that we've seen over the past decade or so. So I'd like to take a step back and just describe what influenza is. So as a clinical syndrome, influenza is predominantly manifest as fever, cough, and muscle aches. Uh, <clears throat> and then influenza, the clinical syndrome, is caused by influenza, the virus. And there are a number of different types. So there are two main types that infect humans and cause the clinical disease. There's influenza A and influenza B. Within influenza A, there are two subtypes, H3N2 and H1N1. And then there are a couple of dominant strains of uh, B that all co-circulate. And that's what we see in seasonal influenza, like in this year. Uh, usually one of the influenza A subtypes dominate, and this year it's H3N2. H3N2 is also associated with more severe infections and uh, worse uh, um, numbers of people being infected. So it's consistent with what we're seeing relative to H1N1 and B. Seasonal flu, like we're seeing this year, is distinct from pandemic influenza. So pandemic influenza we see when there is a new strain that's being introduced to a population that has little or no immunity. That's happened a few times. You mentioned the 1918 flu, the Spanish influenza. Uh, that happened a few times. In, so there are a few uh, pandemics in the last century. The most recent one was the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Uh, but what we're seeing this year is a, is a seasonal flu outbreak. Severe, but not a pandemic. The clip we just also mentioned some of the tools in our toolkit for interventions. Predominant among them is, is influenza vaccination, and that's gotten quite a bit of attention this year, too, uh, because of low vaccine effectiveness numbers that have come out of Australia and then more recently from Canada. Uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to take a little bit of time to describe the flu vaccine, just briefly to mention some of the other uh, interventions. Um, <clears throat> So there's antivirals, also as mentioned, and then basic hygiene and public health measures, including washing your hands and staying home if you're sick. The flu vaccine uh, is comprised of um, several components. So there are uh, strains for each of the flu uh, subtypes that we expect to circulate, H3N2, H1N1, and B. When we hear the numbers about vaccine effectiveness, that refers to either the overall flu vaccine, so how it's doing at protecting against all of the different strains that are circulating, or for particular subcomponents. The low numbers that we've heard for Australia and Canada, this number 10%, is particularly for H3N2. And I bring up this point because the effectiveness against B, uh, influenza B, is higher, estimated between 55 and 60%. Uh, and as we're seeing from the most recent epidemiology, there's uh, increasing circulation of B. So even though the flu vaccine isn't perfect, it provides benefit not only against uh, HCN2, but also against B. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, it's still something that we'd recommend doing because the flu season we anticipate will continue for a while. Uh, the flu vaccine it poses a number of challenges um, are coming up with the strains that we want to put in the flu vaccine. Um, flu mutates. Uh, and so each year we have to predict what strains to put in the vaccine. And that prediction happens six months before we can even distribute the vaccine because of the uh, time to manufacture enough doses to give to the population. Uh, so one of the big challenges in the field is predicting which type of flu will circulate. When we get it wrong and there's a mismatch, we think that uh, the flu vaccine effectiveness suffers. The greater the mismatch, the, uh, the worse the effectiveness. This is something that's exacerbated as well by how flu vaccine is made. Most of it is made in uh, chicken eggs. And as flu adapts to growing, the flu virus adapts to growing in chicken eggs, uh, it can further mutate and exacerbate the mismatch. And then the last point uh, about the flu vaccine is even when there are good matches, it doesn't have perfect effectiveness. And this is uh, perhaps due to 
Um, we think that the vaccine isn't necessarily as immunogenic or able to elicit a protective response as some other vaccines out there. So again, I'd, I'd emphasize that even though it's not perfect, it provides some protection and some is better than none. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. So an immense amount of work going into every year. What's coming? How can we respond to it? Uh, and then on the ground, we have folks like Al Maria with the Mass P Department of Public Health. What are some of the most basic things that you need to do to respond when a flu epidemic, well, not a flu epidemic, but a flu outbreak hits? Well, no, I, think, I think you can call it the annual epidemic, and every flu season is bad from my perspective, and this is a particularly bad flu season, there's no question. And mo state health departments, local health departments spend a lot of time in an effort to prevent influenza in the first place by encouraging people to get vaccinated. The vaccine isn't, as Jonathan said, it isn't as good as we would like it to be, but it's the best we have at the present. So we encourage that and we encourage preventive behaviors. And and uh, one preventive behavior is coughing into your sleeve. You know, I see people still coughing into their hands and uh, potentially more effectively spreading the virus. So we try to get the messages out there about prevention. And we also do a lot of surveillance and try to monitor flu activity. And we have basic systems in place like influenza, like illness. We monitor the proportion of people presenting from care at a variety of sentinel clinical sites who have fever and respiratory symptoms. And that, that correlates extraordinarily well with flu activity. We know that because we also do surveillance for flu virus. So we, we do surveillance based on uh, testing that gets done in the community and testing that gets done in our state public health laboratory. And, and we can correlate that with influenza-like illness quite, quite effectively. We also monitor hospitalizations of people who have a positive test. So we get the information they have a positive test and the information that they were hospitalized as an indicator of the morbidity that's being caused by, by influenza at any given time. And the, the, uh, we have cities and towns in Massachusetts that participate in the CDC's 122 city surveillance system for pneumonia and influenza deaths. Now, not everybody who dies with one of those diagnoses necessarily has influenza, but again, it correlates because we can't really monitor everybody with influenza because most people aren't presenting for care or getting tested even when they do present for care. So we, we have no way of knowing about that. And it's almost impossible to count the number of people who die from influenza because they're dying of the consequences of influenza. And frequently that connection to influenza doesn't get connected. And this year where we're dealing with uh, a lot of public concern about influenza. In fact, uh, for example, our influenza-like illness depends on people behaving the same way as they always behave. And what we're seeing anecdotally and what we're seeing in terms of the proportion of people presenting for care at our Sentinel sites uh, is that uh, the, the proportion of how many tests get done that are positive is changing. So, so we're seeing people presenting with respiratory illness who would not have presented. They may, they may very well have flu, but they probably in another year wouldn't have presented with their influenza. We have to take that into consideration when we uh, deal with this because frequently in public health, it's the public perception and the public reaction that is what we need to deal with in addition to the actual disease entity and the actual um, spread of illness in the community. Okay, thanks, Al. Uh, now, down to Al's left, to Mark. You had a communicable disease center. Tell us, first of all, what the role of something like that is, how it fits into our whole response system, and what your take is on what the priorities ought to be in terms of response. Thanks. Uh, so, the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics here at Harvard Chan uh, is a general purpose center that studies infectious diseases and their transmission. Uh, including influenza, and we are especially interested in uh, emergent threats like antimicrobial resistance and uh, and um, pandemics and and outbreaks when they occur. Um, and so it's a it's a research base on which to uh, enhance responses to unusual events. Uh, and Jonathan and uh, others in the audience are are a part of that. Um, 
In terms of the priorities, I think I want to talk for a moment about the, the vaccine. Uh, Jonathan gave a good introduction to the, to the issues there. But we've become, unfortunately, a little bit used to the idea that flu vaccine is not a great vaccine. I would add my voice to those saying it's worth getting. The B, influenza B is increasing. There's still value in getting it. Um, but if you take measles vaccine, you get it once and then you get it again in childhood and you are protected for life. And uh, it doesn't need to be uh, uh, repeated every year and it doesn't, and it works really, really well, almost perfectly. For flu, we're used to the idea that a good flu vaccine is about 60% protective, a not so good one is maybe 10% protective. Uh, so we've just gotten used to this idea of mediocre protection. Um, we also have the problem that it has to target the right strain every year and that we have to use uh, a combination of expert opinion and, and computerized uh, evolutionary studies to try to figure out what strain to put in and we don't always get it right. Um, even when we get it right, it's not always effective, highly effective as, as Yonatan said and we don't produce it fast. It takes, as he mentioned, six months uh, often in, in eggs, which is a, an old-fashioned way to produce them. And then we have to repeat it every year. So this is really not the kind of vaccine that you would design if you could. If you could. Uh, and I think the good news is that there is a lot of work being done along the lines of trying to solve some of those concerns of speed and efficacy uh, and duration of protection and, and the others. Uh, the bad news is that I think it's too little. Uh, <clears throat> There's a lot of um, uh, discussion lately about the possibility of a universal flu vaccine that could solve maybe all of those problems, but it's really uh, becoming fairly clear to most experts that that's a long way off uh, at current levels of investment. Um, so I think we need a real push to enhance the quality of seasonal flu vaccines with that universal vaccine out there as a kind of uh, uh, holy grail and goal, goal to, to work towards, but there's a lot of incremental improvement that, that will take money and investment and research, but, but needs to be done. Um, uh, I think there are two issues of priorities that are misplaced, and as a sort of, as a citizen and as somebody who's concerned about um, the way that f science funding is used, uh, one concern I have is that some of the work some of the federal funding for flu research has now been directed towards uh, a set of a, a type of experiment that I think actually increases risks rather than decreases risks. And a number of scientists have objected to this, uh, to this type of research, which is to uh, enhance flu viruses artificially in the lab as a way of trying to understand how they become uh, pandemic strains. Uh, I think that's a highly risky strategy. It was paused, federal funding for it was paused for three and a half years. And unfortunately, the, in my view, the, the federal government has decided to reinstate that funding and uh, continue funding the work that, that, in my view, really puts us at risk of a, of a dangerous accident uh, without much in help, helping our, our flu preparedness. The last thing I would say is a more sort of general issue, which is that uh, if you look at the budget that was proposed by the president a couple of days ago, it contains major cuts to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It contains uh, uh, really, uh, and even before that, the CDC was saying that it was going to reduce its presence overseas, uh, not specifically related to flu, but nonetheless, uh, for all diseases, including flu, our presence around the world as a leading public health uh, actor, as a, as a federal government, is crucial to not only the health security of those places, but to our own security, uh, because those diseases travel, and we know that. Um, the global health security uh, funding in the Trump budget that was just released is among the largest of the cuts. So I think there's a real misallocation of priorities to, away from the things that keep us safe, uh, that may not l be immediately apparent every day, but are essential to keeping us safe. So I think that's the broader context. 
Great. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, so we'll move on to our final panelist for our opening comments. It's uh, Tim Uecki at CDC in Atlanta. And uh, it would be nice if we could get some uh, response from a government spokesman on uh, the, the sort of the challenge that Mark just laid down. I don't imagine you're in a position to speak to that. So um, I'd love to just have you get on to talk about the role of the CDC uh, and the federal government in addressing this problem both within the United States and helping to monitor and prevent outbreaks globally. Yes, thanks. Um, so in terms of influenza surveillance, there's a number of components to surveillance. And I think um, Yonatan and, and Al have uh, alluded to some of this. So one component is a monitoring influenza-like um, illness. And as Yonatan mentioned, that's really a, a syndrome of fever and or cough or sore throat. It doesn't necessarily mean that the patient has influenza, but when we look at um, when influ influenza-like illness visits peak in the U.S., that tends to correlate with the peak of influenza season. So we have thousands of sentinel uh, providers throughout the U.S. that are reporting during the influenza season the number of patients that week and the percentage of visits for influenza-like illness. What we're doing at CDC is really coordinating all this data. We're working very closely with our state health and local health department um, colleagues. Another component, which is very important, is the state epidemiologist assessment of, it's, it's really a qualitative assessment of influenza activity in the US. For example, most of January, and frankly, most of this month to date, most states in the U.S. have reported high influenza activity. We don't typically see that all at the same time for so many weeks in a season. Now, a very critical part of influenza surveillance is monitoring the viruses, what we call virologic surveillance. And so throughout the U.S., there are many clinical laboratories and WHO uh, laboratories that will submit specimens to CDC. They're also going to report the percentage positive for influenza viruses um, that, they, that they found per week. So we assemble all that data, we analyze it, and we typically see in the peak of influenza season at the national level, when uh, it's the highest percentage positive, it might be anywhere from 25 to 30% or higher positive, that tends to be the peak nationally. But that's the national picture, and we know that regionally there can be differences and locally there can be differences. The other thing about virologic surveillance that's so important is we get viruses, we get a subset of viruses from state health laboratories that come to CDC, and then we can do detailed analysis. For example, looking at the genetic characteristics, the antigenic characteristics, how much the viruses are evolving or how similar they are to the vaccine virus strains. We also can look at antiviral resistance. What is the prevalence of uh, circulating viruses that are resistant to our main antivirals? That is critical for making recommenda recommendations on the use of antivirals. The other thing we, we monitor uh, is laboratory-confirmed hospitalizations, and this is population-based surveillance in 10 states. And that is really quite valuable because it's not just a syndrome, it's actually laboratory-confirmed influenza hospitalizations. And we look at that at different age groups, and we can see where the biggest impact is. And as you all know, this season is a predominantly influenza A, H3, and 2 dominant season. And we see the highest impact on hospitalizations in people 65 years and older, but also a significant impact on people 50 to 64. We also monitor mortality through looking at uh, pneumonia and influenza-reported deaths. There's some lag to those deaths, but what we can do is we look at those deaths and we can compare to previous seasons and we can project when um, a seasonal baseline based upon previous seasons and we can see when actually reported deaths for pneumonia and influenza exceed that. And we're seeing that this season, which is reflective of a, a severe season. So we have outpatient illness for influenza-like illness. We have the states that are reporting uh, qualitative assessments of influenza activity. We have, we're monitoring deaths from pneumonia and influenza. We're monitoring the viruses. The other component of mortality reporting is we have pediatric influenza-associated deaths. 
And this became a national reportable condition in 2004. So tragically, every season, unfortunately, we do have children that die from complications of influenza each year that are reported to, to us from, by state health department. Another component that we're always working on is looking for viruses that are not seasonal viruses, but are what we call novel influenza viruses, typically of animal origin. So it represents zoonotic transmission from animals to people, typically either from a swine influenza virus, we call that variant viruses, or an avian influenza A viruses. So national reporting for novel influenza A viruses became um, uh, reportable in 2007. And we have had cases, sporadic cases, of people in the US who were infected with variant viruses of swine origin. And in the past 10 to 15 years, we've also had some very sporadic uh, reports of uh, human infections with avian influenza A viruses. So this is part of pandemic preparedness of monitoring the emergence of a virus that poses potential to cause an influenza pandemic. The other thing that I would say is that we, I'm just speaking about US surveillance, but we are intimately tied into global influenza surveillance. For example, the World Health Organization surveillance network which is called the Global Influenza Surveillance and Response System. This is comprised of um, more than 140 national influenza centers in 113 member states. And these national influenza centers then share influenza viruses and report data to WHO collaborating centers for influenza. And there are six of those worldwide in Tokyo, in Melbourne, in London, in Beijing and CDC's national, um, my, my division, the influenza division is the CDC's um, WHO collaborating center for uh, surveillance epidemiology and control of influenza. There is one more WHO reference center um, uh, at St. Jude's Research Hospital in Tennessee that is a, a, a reference center for the ecology of influenza viruses in animals and particularly looking at the animal human interface. So all these national influenza centers share uh, data on viruses, including novel influenza A viruses of pand pandemic potential through the WHO influenza surveillance system with the WHO collaborating centers. And these are used, these data are used to make the uh, recommendations for influenza vaccine strain selection. And at CDC, we're also funding, right now we have 50 cooperative agreements in different countries, more, 50 countries actually, to help build influenza surveillance and response capacity. And over many years, this has helped many countries in the world to be able to detect influenza viruses. And in particular, one illustration is during 2009, it actually enabled many countries to monitor the spread of the pandemic. So I think we're involved in trying to support both domestic and global surveillance for influenza viruses to understand not just the viruses, but disease burden as well. Great, thanks so much, Tim. So let's take a look uh, a little bit deeper at some of the global picture. We've got a video here from the World Health Organization about flu surveillance and vaccines around the world. Influenza is one of the world's most common diseases. It affects millions of people each year. Many different influenza viruses circulate. Some are benign, some more dangerous, and they can evolve very rapidly. Influenza can be deadly in the young, the old, and in people with chronic illnesses, especially when a new influenza virus emerges to which no one has immunity. Influenza can emerge anywhere and at any time and can quickly become a dangerous pandemic. 
For all these reasons, for the past 65 years, the World Health Organization's Global Influenza Surveillance and Response System, known as GISRS, has been continuously monitoring which viruses are circulating and where. Twice a year, experts from the GISRS network come together to pool data and recommend which constituents should go into the influenza vaccine for the upcoming flu season. The influenza vaccine, one of the safest and longest standing in the world, has saved millions of lives thanks to the work of the World Health Organization and the GISRS network. Okay, so we're going to turn to the discussion section now between our panelists here. We'll talk for 10 or 12 minutes and then we're going to turn to questions from the audience and from our viewers online. Um, so we've gotten a little bit of a picture of how of the global picture here. We've also heard a lot about how the, the vaccines just aren't always a good match and this year is one uh, case in point on that. So how can we change the efficacy of the vaccines? How can we improve the process to make them more effective? Um, are there any other things we can do to improve the ability of the vaccine to actually tamp down these outbreaks? I think there are a number of sort of short-term small things that we can do, and then there's a larger research uh, agenda. So the, the short-term issues include improving our ability to predict the strains that will be circulating. Uh, so this has become, uh, this is evolving from a, a matter of making expert opinion, co combining expert opinion into a more scientific process that involves uh, understanding the evolution of the virus and using uh, computational tools to try to predict which flu strains are coming. So I think that's one area uh, where, where we can do better and, and it's just a matter of improving the, the tools that we have. Um, relatedly, in the production process, uh, there is beginning to be a move from egg-based to production where the vaccine virus is grown in eggs and then killed to a, to a cell culture-based production system, which is in principle both faster and less likely to cause changes in the virus that would move it away from being the strain that we intend. So that's a, another uh, thing that's sort of within view and, and already happening. In the longer term, there is a, a broader research agenda of trying to figure out ways to improve the human immune response uh, in terms of either using adjuvants, which are substances that you add to a vaccine to enhance the immune response, or, uh, or finding parts of the virus to immunize with that are more immunogenic and more likely to uh, pro provide broad protection. As I mentioned earlier, there's the notion of a universal flu vaccine, which would be a single shot that would provide broad protection. Uh, and there's been a lot of interest in that right now. The, the uh, expert consensus seems to be forming around the notion that that's still a long ways off. But there's uh, nonetheless, uh, that's the goal. And if we can chip away at the issues of duration of immunity, breadth of immunity, strength of immunity, um, and speed of production, I think all of that will lead in the right direction. Tim, you want to weigh in on that from Atlanta? I, I tend to agree with everything that um, was just said by Mark. Um, you know, I think a lot of this takes a lot more funding, and um, I think what we're trying to do is understand um, the impact of influenza and I think improve surveillance. So. Better surveillance is going to improve more timely sharing and more sharing of viruses. I think the issue of um, improving the timeliness uh, and predictive capacity. So, um, but there, there have been a lot of improvements in, in you know, the last 10 to 15 years, but we need to do much better. Um, I just want to sound sort of a, a little bit of a positive note to say that although you're hearing that influenza vaccine effectiveness is not as, um, as good as we would like, even in the best of years. There is still benefit from influenza vaccination. Um, you know, some estimates that we have done over a, a number of seasons have suggested um, a really a, a large number of averted 
illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths due to influenza. This ranges from you know several million illnesses averted um, to um, averted medical visits, uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of, of visits, uh, thousands of hospitalizations and, and, and deaths averted. So uh, there's still benefit in, in, in our current uh, vaccination uh, strategies, uh, but it's also useful to note that a lot of people are still not vaccinated, including those that are at high risk for complications of influenza. And we need to do a better job at vaccinating those people. So there's no one would argue that we need better effective vaccines. Uh, we also need to uh, track vaccines much better um, and, and do a better uh, match in, as Marcus suggested, in predicting what virus strains are evolving and, um, and better match to the vaccine strains. I do agree that we need to move away from just production of in eggs, it's hundreds of millions of eggs are, are used every year, and this is a laborious process. So there have been developments in vaccine technology, recombinant vaccines, high-dose vaccines, as Mark mentioned, adjuvanted vaccines, but we need to do better. Um, I want to pick right up on that and move to Yonatan and come back to the question of sort of the public interface and access, better access to vaccines. But uh, Yonatan, what are the main obstacles to better vaccines and what are some of the, uh, the possibilities that are in play? I mean, I remember Mark and I were here on a similar panel about five years ago talking about flu viruses and pandemics, and there was optimism at the time that there was going to be a breakthrough within the next five years. It's almost five years. It doesn't seem to have happened. What are the obstacles and what are the possible routes that people are exploring for that kind of breakthrough? So I, I would uh, um, echo basically what, what Mark and Tim have said that, uh, you know, understanding more about what uh, flu strains are circulating or being able to predict them uh, more successfully, uh, coming up with a flu vaccine that can elicit a strong immune response uh, continues to be one of the, the big challenges. Uh, I think we are making progress on both fronts. Uh, the computational tools that Mark mentioned are improving in sophistication and nuance, uh, and our understanding of the relationship between the types of influenza uh, that uh, individuals have seen and their immune repertoire, how their immune system has responded uh, historically, and the impact of that repertoire on uh, susceptibility to subsequent flu exposure, that is also deepening and I think will uh, be helpful in trying to understand uh, um, how to build a better vaccine. Uh, all of this also requires uh, more funding and research. So to echo both Tim and Mark's points, you know, these are extremely important areas that, that uh, need uh, more support. Uh, and, and also to echo Tim's point again, uh, I think even though the vaccines are not perfect, they contribute uh, immensely to public health, uh, uh, both at an individual level and at a population level. And uh, maybe we need to get people to be on panels to make sure they get vaccinated. Uh, um, but uh, another one at two o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> um, but whatever the effort, that's a, that's uh, something that I think uh, we, we can do better as well. So that 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 leads right back to you, Al. Um, Clearly, we've heard that there are benefits to getting a vaccine, even when the effectiveness rate is is very low. What can we be doing differently to get more people vaccinated? I mean, myself, I got a note from my healthcare provider in the fall, get your flu shot. Uh, here it is February. I just got it. I've been to the doctor a couple times since then, once for my eyes, which are getting worse as I get older, and never a mention of flu for anybody who wasn't like my primary care physician. It seems to me that you could, at every every engagement with the healthcare system, no, no matter who the doctor is, no matter who you are, have the flu be front and center when you're coming into flu season. That doesn't seem to happen. Why not? Can we do that? Can we do other things? Well, one of our major initiatives uh, is to try to reduce the barriers to people getting flu shots or any vaccine that's recommended. And one of the things we did in Massachusetts that other states have done as well is try to reduce the barriers by allowing more pharmacy-based immunization and and having pharmacists give flu shots. And I think that's helped because it's made it, made it more convenient. I think we can make it more convenient in many other ways. We work very closely with local boards of health uh, for their 
to support them in their flu clinics or in their flu clinic efforts, and, and also helping them get out into the community because, you know, you can set up a flu clinic, but that depends on people coming for their flu shot, to, to actually go out into, the, into senior housing, to go out to group homes where particularly vulnerable people may live. And we're working very closely with the long-term care facilities to enhance uh, immunization, not only of their residents, which actually they do a pretty good job of, but also for the healthcare workers that work in those facilities and for the healthcare workers that work in uh, acute care and other healthcare delivery sites. So we, we work with all of those partners to try to enhanced immunization. I think we've had some success over the years. We've gone, in acute care, we've gone from 30 to 40% of the healthcare workers getting vaccinated to, right now, we're at 94% in terms of the average for acute care facilities. The other thing that we've done, and, and you have to sort of think about where people interact with places where they get immunized, is that every hospital now in Massachusetts has an opt-out flu shot during flu, flu immunization season for anybody being discharged from the hospital. So uh, there's a standing order that everybody being discharged is offer, offered a flu shot. And, and those are the kinds of things, to make it routine, to make it automatic, to, to provide standing orders so that people don't have to go looking for a prescription to enhance access in a variety of sites where people are, rather than waiting for people to show up for a clinic. I want to throw this out real quick to the bunch of you, and anybody can answer, but um, I also don't want to take too long with it. I, I, I'm wondering if, in addition to, to lack of, of enough sufficient access and, and information, there isn't actually also a public uh, antipathy toward vaccines these days, and we have a lot of concern about childhood immunizations and a lot of anti-vaxxers, as, as they're called. We have a president who is, at best, very skeptical uh, and indifferent to science in general and has expressed anti-vaccine sentiments from time to time. Um, so we have that on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a flu vaccine this year, which is maybe 10, 20 percent effective. I wonder how many people are looking at that and saying, well, the thing's not going to help me. It might hurt me. I'm not going to do it. How do we respond to that? Are you seeing that? And how do we respond to it if it's true? We, we do see that, and uh, it's, it's not as bad as maybe it seems to be, but it's bad enough that we really spend a lot of time trying to counter the myths that are out there about vaccines. To, you know, fortunately, we have the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that very strenuously looks at the evidence base and makes recommendations on a national basis, and we can use those data to try to convince people. But you know, we're, we're struggling against uh, material on the internet that's, you know, it's hard to keep up with, hard to refute as it, as it comes up. So basically, we just have to have a consistent message and, and uh, to point out to some people that if, if you don't get a flu shot, it's 100% ineffective. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else want to weigh in on that or should we just move to questions from the audience? We have a few coming in already. I'm going to turn to Lisa Marowitz. She's the director of this whole program. And yes, thanks, everyone. We have a lot of questions coming in. We're going to only have time for a few. So, and you've covered a lot of the substance of these questions, so I'll pick a few. Um, this is a question from a viewer in South Africa. In the Western Cape of South Africa, we are in year three of a severe drought. The city of Cape Town will shut off the water supply on day zero, currently projected to be May 11th. This is a scenario that could be a reality for other big cities in the future. There is an expectation that infections related to lack of sanitation will spike. How would an early flu season with a lethal strain of the virus fit into this scenario? Mark, maybe? Who <laughs> <laughs> wants to handle that? That's, um, uh, both lack of water and lack of sanitation and uh, bad influenza season are problematic and they would feed off of one another in the sense that uh, e each time you get an infection, say influenza, it makes you vulnerable to other infections and uh, and similarly, the, actually some of the best evidence about why 
infectious disease mortality declined in the, in the United States in the middle of the 20th century is that, that it correlated city by city with the introduction of clean water. So clean, abundant water is essential for health, as we all know. Um, and uh, it's hard to say that flu is the major reason to be concerned about, uh, about the situation in the Western Cape, but it is yet another reason to be concerned about, uh, about drought and about the broader picture of climate change that's, that's threatening drought in other places. Thank you. We've had a number of questions related to climate change, so thank you. Here's another one um, from New Hampshire State Representative Dr. Valerie Frazier. There should not be a presumption that any vaccine is safe and effective, nor a presumption that any flu-like symptoms are indeed the flu, which causes inaccurate data collection. Therefore, why is there a recommendation to vaccinate pregnant women and babies with the flu vaccine that is only reported at best 10% effective? Well, I'm happy to try to address yes, yes, that. Um, Thank you. So let me just say that, um, you know, every season is variable. Um, it's predictable in that we know it, we're going to have an influenza seasonal epidemic. We don't exactly know when the season's going to peak. Some seasons are milder. Some seasons are more severe. We're experiencing a more severe season. But when we track disease burden, laboratory-confirmed influenza, so not syndromic, we see that the highest risk groups for hospitalizations are people 65 and older, people 50 to 64, and that's because of the increasing prevalence of comorbid conditions as you age, and young children, particularly under two years of age. And the younger you are, particularly less than six months of age, the mortality rates are the highest among all children. We also know that, especially from the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, that pregnant women were disproportionately impacted in terms of hospitalizations. And there were a fair amount of pregnant women who died from severe complications of 2009 H1N1 virus infection. And globally, we know that pregnant women are at risk for hospitalization for influenza um, during pregnancy. So uh, we know that pregnant women and women up to two weeks postpartum are what we would consider in a high risk group. We know that young infants are in a high-risk group for complications, hospitalizations, and deaths. The question is how to best protect them. So vaccinating pregnant women can actually protect both the pregnant woman from influenza, but actually, as a bonus, there's transfer of antibodies to the developing fetus, and so that when the, the baby is born, there are randomized controlled studies conducted in different countries. These are not effectiveness studies, these are efficacy studies that have shown protection of the infant from laboratory-confirmed influenza in some studies out to four months and some out to six months after birth to a woman who was vaccinated during pregnancy. And influenza vaccination is not uh, recommended, it's contraindicated for infants less than six months old. So how can we protect such a vulnerable group? We can vaccinate the mother during pregnancy. We can vaccinate all other household members six months and older, and especially all caregivers in the home. And so it's um, the, the point is that there's abundant data for laboratory-confirmed influenza to establish that very young infants are at high risk for influenza-associated hospitalization and mortality and that pregnant women are also, if they get influenza, are at high risk for hospitalization. So I think the disease burden data are there, and so as part of a strategy for all high risk, they, the, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is an advisor group to CDC, does recommend annual vaccination, actually of everyone six months and older in the U.S., and that includes pregnant women, and that will protect, help protect their infants after six months. If, if I may, I'd also like to add on to that excellent uh, 
description by addressing one of the other points in that question, which is, I think, a, a misconception that I, I tried to mention at the beginning, and that is the effectiveness of the vaccine. The 10% effectiveness is particularly for the H3N2 component, and that's what's been estimated in Australia and Canada. But there is a higher vaccine effectiveness against influenza B, which, as I mentioned, we're starting to see more and more of uh, circulating in the season. So it's important for the vaccination not only to be protected against H3N2, but to be protected against all of the different influenza viruses that are circulating. So there's additional benefit uh, to be noted, and that 10% only refers to a subcomponent of the vaccine overall. I also wanted, I mean, there, there was also an assumption, um, an assertion embedded in that question that I want a truth, well, I want a reality check. Um, I believe the questioner said, and she was a state representative from New Hampshire, which gives me a little bit of pause. She said there's no proof that a vaccine is not harmful. I think that's roughly what she said. Um, that there is, should not be an assumption, sh there presumption should not be an assumption that any vaccine that, is safe and That effective. a vaccine is safe. There should but not be an assumption that a vaccine is safe. Given that you cannot prove a negative, is there, in fact, any evidence that flu vaccines are not safe? You know, I, I, I tend to compare flu vaccines to over-the-counter medications that we, you know, buy and take every day without thinking. I think if you actually look at the safety profile of most of those over-the-counter medications, it's actually worse than flu vaccine. And I've sort of been involved with probably thousands of flu shots over the years in various directly in injecting them or supervising them. And I don't remember one serious reaction. Now, there have been reactions and people do. You know, I, there was this great study in the 90s where they vaccinated 800 healthy workers. Or it was a study with 800 healthy workers. They gave 400 uh, a flu shot and 400 a half cc of normal saline. So they got a placebo. and. They didn't know what they were giving. The people didn't know what they were getting. And, and it was really a study to look at cost-effectiveness of vaccinating healthy young workers. But one of the interesting things they did was they, without knowing what people got, they called them a week later. And 35% of the people who got vaccine said, oh, yeah, I got the flu from the vaccine. I have flu symptoms from the vaccine. And 35% of the people who got normal saline said, oh, yeah, I got the flu. I got the, uh, I got the flu from the vaccines, demonstrating in a very, uh, you know, I think eloquent way that whatever happens after a flu shot that people associate with a flu shot may not really be due to the vaccine. Yeah, I'd just I like to add to that, that CDC and the Food and Drug Administration administer a vaccine adverse event uh, surveillance system. And so, um, there, there are re reports of potential adverse events that are reported, um, and CDC does monitor vaccine-associated uh, reports uh, of side effects. Um, but in fact, this is actually quite a safe vaccine. Um, the most common side effects are going to be pain at the injection site, um, but there, you know, some people do experience um, some more severe side effects. But actually, the the uh, rates are quite low. And just to echo a point uh, of, that Jonathan just made, um, you know, it's really important to realize that influenza vaccination prevents influenza. It doesn't prevent influenza-like illness that's caused by other respiratory viruses. And during the winter, there are many kinds of human respiratory viruses that are circulating that can cause similar illness. But influenza vaccine only prevents influenza. The other point is that we have not um, reported um, out our vaccine estimates, but later this week, we will have some preliminary interim uh, influenza vaccine estimates. And as Yonatan points out, that what you've heard in the media and actually our Canadian colleagues to the north have released uh, preliminary data to suggest that the H3N2 uh, component of the vaccine had much lower effectiveness than the B uh, component. We also have to look at different ages. And so we know that vaccinating elderly people is always a challenge in terms of uh, protection with any of the, um, the vaccine components, although some are better than the H3N2. So I think we have to look at the fact that there are multiple viruses circulating and that the effectiveness overall we can look at but also we need to look at the effectiveness at 
particular strains. So if you haven't been vaccinated this season, there's still a lot of the influenza season to go. There's multiple viruses circulating and you can still benefit from influenza vaccination. Great, thanks. We've got about five minutes left. No way we're gonna to get to everything we've got in here. We've got about three hours worth of questions and answers here. But we did wanna to get to one more question from online and then we're gonna to go to just a quick roundup on the panel. I do, I just wanna give our studio audience an opportunity to ask okay. a question. If anyone has one, if not, I'll do one more from online that I think we've discussed and then we'll wrap up. Question over here. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, this question is uh, for Mark. You were talking about federal uh, funds allocated uh, for research or for influenza, and you were mentioning that there is federal money uh, that is going to be uh, used to enhance flu viruses in the lab, and this is a change from uh, recent years. So why do you think that is? It's a long-standing discussion, uh, but the, the brief summary is that uh, a number of researchers uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, but with U.S. funding, had been doing studies, the scientific purpose of which was to understand how flu viruses go from being bird adapted, which is where all flu viruses ultimately come from, to being adapted to mammals like people. Uh, and they study them in ferrets, because ferrets are the organism you use in the lab. Um, they. There are a lot of ways you could study that, and the, the controversial type of way to study that or way to study that is by uh, evolving the virus in the lab to become more transmissible through the air between ferrets. Uh, a group of, of uh, colleagues and I, about four or five years ago when this was reported, uh, raised some concerns about both the scientific premise that that's actually a very useful thing to do because there are a lot of ways things can happen and learn, learning one way in the lab maybe doesn't tell you much, uh, but also the, the risk of an accidental or in fact a deliberate release by, a, uh, by somebody of one of these viruses. Um, it's, it's really, it's a tiny subset of influenza research. It's a quite expensive subset because of the containment you have to do, but it's a small amount, but it's uniquely dangerous. There are dozens of things you can do to study the way the flu evolves, and this is the only one that has the risk of a pandemic. It was paused, uh, the federal funding was paused three and a half years ago, and about a month or two ago, that pause was lifted and funding was resumed. So uh, U.S. funds are now being used to do that kind of work, which I think is a mistake. Anyone else really quickly want to weigh in that? Or we, we basically got two minutes. So um, real quick takeaway from each one of you. We'll just go on down the line here, starting with the Anton. So uh, again, I'd, I'd emphasize the importance of getting vaccinated and also the importance uh, of continuing to invest in efforts to improve the vaccine through both uh, the study of the virus and the study of the immune response uh, to the virus and to the vaccine. You know, I think a lot of young, healthy people say, well, the flu is no big deal for me, but I think they need to think about where the vulnerable uh, people with underlying conditions, which who we really want to vaccinate, but where do they uh, acquire their infection frequently is from caregivers. And uh, if there's an infant in the family, I think you know people should be thinking about not getting the flu, not only because they don't want to get sick, but also because of the potential for exposure. I would echo both of those and, and just add the sort of global perspective that we are in an incredibly well-connected world in which infectious disease anywhere can become infectious disease anywhere else by one plane ride. Uh, and um, it's more important than ever right now uh, in a time of uh, falling budgets to uh, reverse that fall for, for the most important uh, aspects of, of global health, uh, which are not just uh, other focused and, and beneficial to the world, but the U.S. is a leader for a reason, or the U.S. has been a leader for a reason in that area. And that's because it benefits us to have a robust uh, network around the world of, of uh, laboratories and scientists and uh, epidemiologists studying these things uh, and to cut that at this point, I think, is a, a really catastrophically foolish decision. And on to you, Tim. I would agree with all of um, what's been said so far. And clearly, we need um, 
better surveillance, I think, both in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, I think that better understanding um, uh, of what viruses are circulating and better predictive capacities for vaccine strain selection, this will contribute to improvements in public health. Uh, I think we need to understand what happened this season better and particularly um, look at better ways to estimate vaccine or, or, or monitor vaccine effectiveness. Um, and one thing we haven't talked about, uh, it, actually the focus has really been on vaccines, but I want to just say a word about therapeutics. And so a lot of people get sick, millions of people get sick, hundreds of thousands of people get hospitalized, people die in this country. Um, and so there's a real need for better and new therapeutics to treat influenza illness, and in particular to treat severe influenza illness, people who are hospitalized. Um, and right now we're really focused on one class of antiviral drugs, uh, but we really need to look at other uh, modalities, combination treatment, and other, um, other therapies, including host-directed uh, therapies. So I think there's really a lot of need for more developments for treating the patient better. Okay, great. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. And as usual, I feel like we've just really begun the conversation. I want to thank everybody uh, on the panel here from uh, Harvard School of Public Health, from the CDC, from Massachusetts Department of Public Health, Yoatan, Yoatan, forgive me, I keep getting that wrong. Yoatan Grant, grad from the Harvard School of Public Health, Alfred DeMaria of Massachusetts Department of Public Health, Mark Lipsich of the Harvard Chan School as well, and Tim Uecki joined us from the CDC in Atlanta. So that's it for now. We hope you'll tune in for our next forum, which will be in a little more than two weeks. The topic will be heart and brain disease in women, sex and gender connections. It's on February 28th also from noon to 1 p.m. And as always, you can catch it online uh, at forumhsps.org. I'm Peter Thompson of PRI is the World. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.